The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And uh, we're learning today about the bills uh, and uh, the emphasis of what a marquee team they are uh, heading into the 2022 season. The Caesar Sportsbook sent me a press release that the bills are dominating the Super Bowl handle. They have uh, been taking 14.4% of all Super Bowl winning bets. Second are the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers at a distant 6.8%. So that uh, goes to show what the public has to say about the Buffalo Bills. The NFL apparently taking note. Uh, we've learned that the Bills will uh, open uh, on prime time against uh, the Tennessee Titans, I should say open at home uh, in week two against the Tennessee Titans. And then uh, Sam Farmer of the Los Angeles Times reporting today that it looks like the Bills will open the season uh, in that classic, uh, well, I don't want to say classic because it's relatively new, but whatever the NFL is trying to make its traditional kickoff opener Thursday night uh, in week one, at the Los Angeles Rams. So the defending uh, Super Bowl champions, uh, early test against the Buffalo Bills on Thursday night football. Then the Bills follow up with yet another primetime game at home against uh, the Tennessee Titans. I uh, just wanted to mention that off the top. I don't, uh, I don't know if you have any quick thoughts on that, Jonah, before, uh, before we talk about the Sabres and, and get to our guest, Gene Kirshner. Uh, who is going to uh, tell us about Rich Strike and uh, his 80 to one long shot victory at the Kentucky Derby. But uh, just wanted to throw a couple of Bills nuggets out there early, Jonah. Yeah, I also saw that the latest round of offseason power rankings from the Athletic has the Bills at number one, which is maybe not surprising, but a bit notable for a team that not only didn't make the Super Bowl, didn't win the Super Bowl, didn't even make the conference championship game last year. Usually there's some deference to how last season ended up when those type of off-season and preseason ratings are put together. But, you know, you look at the roster and the moves they've made, Von Miller and the draft picks and the momentum the Bills had coming out of the last couple of seasons, it really isn't a surprise that they're one of the Super Bowl favorites. I don't know if this is a position. It's fun, especially with the primetime games and the media attention. You don't hear really any complaining from Bills fans anymore that ESPN or the national broadcast or the national league Football League in general is ignoring the Bills because they're a smaller market. Uh, as you can see, when you have a good, exciting, marketable team in the NFL, it doesn't matter where you're playing. You're going to be put into these positions to an extent. The Cowboys and some teams might get more of these opportunities than a team like the Bills. But when the Bills are good, as they were in the 90s and they are now, they become 
a marquee franchise. And you're seeing that with the Bills being put into, as far as we know, marquee games in the first two weeks of the season. And it'll be more than that. These won't be the only primetime national television spotlight games that the Bills get. They're probably going to get up to maybe a half dozen or more when the full schedule is released on Thursday. I don't know. It is really smart business for the NFL to jump on the Buffalo Bills while they can. And that's not just a Buffalo Bills comment. That's any small market team, Cincinnati Bengals. While a team is hot, they have a hot quarterback. Uh, the fans are all over um, the idea from a fantasy football standpoint. Josh Allen's going to be an early pick in your draft, uh, whether you live in Idaho or Florida or Buffalo. Uh, Stefan Diggs, all that stuff. Um, the Bills have players that people want to watch. And so the NFL needs to jump on that while it, while it's happening. Uh, so that way you know, they can keep as many uh, people in their fan base happy because there could come a time in five, seven, 10 years that the bills are dull again. And uh, let's, you know, I'm, I'm not rooting for that, you know, so don't uh, start peppering me with, uh, with your DMS or your, or your Twitter replies. I'm not rooting for that, but the NFL as a business has to look at striking while the iron's hot. And I think that that's clearly what they're doing with the bills. Especially when you think of the way last season ended and all of these networks in the league, putting together the schedule, they're probably salivating the idea of putting the Bills against another good team with a high-scoring offense and a good quarterback and seeing that kind of thrilling shootout down to the end. And maybe even it goes into overtime and we get to see this new uh, application of the overtime rules and the, the Bills might have – did have something to do with facilitating change with. One thing I will say, and we, maybe we, I guess we could have a whole offseason and preseason and early season to get into this, but I'd be interested in your take on this. I'm not so sure this is the best position for the Bills themselves to be in, to be in this kind of front-running favorite status six months out. I think this team, maybe to use a wrestling expression that Sean McDermott might appreciate, is better when they're fighting from underneath, when they think they're being counted out and have their backs against the wall, even when it's fabricated in their own psyche a little bit, that when they are the favorites and they are playing from ahead, I don't know if we always see the best of the Bills in those situations. Yeah, that's the power of the underdog. I wrote a long feature about that a couple of years ago, and it really was uh, the impetus was why the New England Patriots, while they still had Tom Brady and were winning all those Super Bowls, always like to position themselves as the underdog. Everybody hates us. Uh, everybody writes us off, uh, totally ignoring the fact that they're the Super Bowl favorites in the preseason betting, and they were the favorites all throughout, and they were the favorite every game that they played. And uh, and then they get to the Super Bowl and hold up the Lombardi Trophy, and and, and Bill Belichick says something stupid like uh, everybody counted us out. You know, it's uh, it's what you it's that stuff that you manufacture inside your uh, facility walls to get the players uh, as as anxious to play on on Monday night, Sunday night, Thursday night, Sunday afternoon, wherever it may be. Whatever whatever works for you, that's what a team will do. Uh, and the underdog mentality is a lot of times more powerful than the alpha dog mentality, which would be like Mike Tyson, right? Um, there's the, you know, the underdog is, it's easier to get a, to, to get a player motivated with the chip on the shoulder than to get all 53 people on the roster feeling like they are invincible. Um, it, it's, it's a potent, uh, it's a potent weapon. And particularly uh, this time of year, off season workouts and mini camps and OTAs. The Bills do have that sour taste in their mouth from the way last season ended, and that might be motivating them to 
you know, go through the grind in the off season. And maybe, maybe the Bills have the best of both worlds and that they have this national cachet that's exciting the fan base and building interest for the season where in the building they can still remind themselves that they didn't achieve their goals last year and actually came one step backward and fewer wins in the regular season from where they were a year before. And maybe that can put them in a bit of an underdog mindset that they still need to not only get better, but get back to where they were two years ago from a record and performance standpoint. Um, underdog uh, that I do want to talk about uh, before we get to Gene Kirshner and talk about the ultimate underdog, Rich Strike at 80 to 1. I want to talk about the Buffalo Sabres, the plucky Buffalo Sabres. Uh, a lot of fans, I would say most fans, were excited. The players even saying they didn't want the season to end, that it was the most entertaining non-playoff season they've ever been a part of. They're, um, they're really looking forward and eager to get going on 2022-2023 season. Um, let's get going. Let's pick up where we left off. Um, you know, Jonah, as somebody who covered the team quite a bit this year, and, and you've been watching them live a lot, you've been in, uh, you know, talking with them in the news conferences, asking the questions to the coaching staff and the players. Now that we've seen a little bit of playoff hockey, and uh, I'm speaking for myself here, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it maybe seems like the Sabres, you get an idea of what we saw the Sabres do in March and April, and maybe it doesn't look like they would be ready for this kind of hockey. Uh, the gulf seems a little wider uh, than, than what we were watching on MSG Plus uh, for the last uh, several weeks versus what we're seeing uh, on a nightly basis on TNT and ESPN. Well, yeah, absolutely. And even with the success that the Sabres had down the stretch, I don't know if in their building they really thought they were a playoff caliber team quite yet because of the style of play, uh, the offensive style of play, the weaknesses they have defensively and in goaltending, and their youth. I mean, they don't have that grit and that sand, and they have Kyle Oposo and Gerber. Oh, see, now there's good. a guy who's been covering <laughs> hockey. Yeah. They have get leadership, it. but not How about a glue guys. guy? Can you get some glue glue guy for me? And and uh, give me some other uh, hockey hockey jargon. Well, sand is the one that – that's the one. You don't – because glue guy you can apply to other sports. That's true. Basketball. Sand is And sand is a great sport. word, too, because it is such a nuisance. Like, it is annoying. It is always on you. It is relentless. No matter how much you try to get rid of it, it's always there. Sand is a great – is a great phrase for sports, I think, for the the Adam Mayer type player, the uh, the Kyle Oposo, the uh, I don't know, the Curtis Brown, the Michael Pekka. And it's something the Sabers are probably lacking, especially from their projected top six forwards and the top defenseman is good and promising as Owen Power and Rasmus Dahlin look going forward. They. They have really good offensive defensemen and projecting that they're going to have more of that, but they need more defensive defensemen and defensive mindset from the forwards and the defensemen. They need to solve the goaltending issue. Right now, you don't know who's going to be the goaltender next year. Uh, they do have prospects and Devin Levi coming in possibly in a year or two. Uh, and that could maybe solve that conversation. But in order for them to get from what if they, they get now, a goaltender with sand? I mean, don't even know how that would work. Especially with all those pads, I think I that would be awful. It'd be like a day at the beach, and you come come back, and it's in your 
it's in your duffel bag or your backpack and you just can't get rid of it. I can't imagine a goaltender with sand that would just be in everything. I mean, are we seeing it a little bit with Igor Shostarkin? one being the best, maybe the best goaltender in the league, but he makes 79 saves one night, then he goes out and gets body checked the next night. Uh, the last time they played Pittsburgh in the regular season, he's waving them goodbye after the win. So I guess he's maybe a that's some sand. sand. That could be sand. Ryan Miller maybe had some sand. I don't know. Would you say that? I don't know. Well, he had some attitude. I mean, it was mostly off the ice, you know, cause he was so dialed in during the game, but you know, calling somebody a piece of shit in the, while surrounded by cameras and microphones. That's, that was pretty ballsy. Um, anyways, I, I, I digress. The series, the series I'm looking to see some sand from, from the sunny beaches in Florida, the Florida Panthers were the highest scoring team in the league. They won the president's trophy. They averaged more than four goals a game. I think that was the first time in a number. It is the first time in a number of years. I'm forgetting the number that a team has scored that many goals, but they're, and they're the number one seed mired in a, 2-2 series with the eight-seed Washington Capitals, a team that had won the Cup not that long ago, 2018, and they know how to play that playoff-style, defensive-minded, gritty hockey game. And not to say the Panthers don't know that, because I think last night they put up a good effort and they held Washington to 16 shots on goal. In an Sam Reinhart with a big goal. Right. But I think you can look at Florida and see, is that maybe what this current Sabres roster is developing into a highly skilled, high-scoring, speed-based team that really can't keep the other team from matching them shot for shot and possibly goal for goal. And there was even talk from the Panthers when they had won here. You know, they won here in a 6-3 game. They won here in a 5-3 game. I think it was that 5-3 game where they were saying, we're not going to be able to win like this in the playoffs. We're not going to just be able to get all the goals we need in the third period and come back. We have to keep other teams from scoring and control possession in the neutral zone and the puck. And I think if Florida loses as a number one seed to an eight seed Washington team that has that playoff and Stanley Cup winning experience, it's a lesson in roster building for the Sabres and that the players they need to add might not need to be skilled goal scorers or highly skilled offensive defensemen, that they need to add the less sexier aspects of the team, the defensive forwards and the checking line players and the physical defensemen that will change the fortunes of this team when they're ready to compete for the playoffs. And maybe that's not going to happen next year and it's not a priority this offseason, but it does seem to be something that will need to be addressed as this team gets to that next level. Or they're going to be a lot like those 1980s, early 90s Sabres teams that made the playoffs every year but never got out of the first round until the May Day goal, and that was the only year they ever won a playoff series with that era because I, and I don't know, will the Sabres fans having not been in the playoffs for 11 going on 12 years, be okay with that? Or do you really need a team that gets to the playoffs and is a contending Stanley cup caliber team to get the fan base excited? Yeah. This looks like a team that would get summarily bounced uh, from the first round of, uh, of this playoff field based on what we were seeing from the Sabres uh, this season. So yes, changes need to be made for sure. Uh, And I think that you need to add some players who have been in the playoffs before, who have playoff experience. Uh, And yes, the the roster's dotted with guys here and there, but not extensive playoff experience. And, uh, you know, it's, I hate to keep going back this far, but unfortunately with this organization, you do need to go back this far to compare to when things were good. Um, That was what, made the Sabres so successful, especially in 2006 with that deep playoff run. 
um, is they had guys who knew what it took. They had, and then I, I recall Daniel Briere at the Pepsi Center, what was then called the Pepsi Center. Let's say there were two or three weeks left in the regular season, and we were standing by the door. We were walking out to the parking lot, and we stopped, and he, he said that he was concerned. He told me that he didn't think that the team was ready, that there were too many young guys on the team, and with the success that they had the year before, they'd won the President's Trophy that, that second year out of the lockout that there were too many people in the, in the locker room that thought, excuse me, in the dressing room, uh, who thought they could just flip a switch and get ready for playoff hockey. And he said that we're not ready. We're going we're gonna to run into trouble until we get our minds right. And he was frustrated that there were too many players, he thought, going through the motions of just being, they knew they were really friggin' good, uh, but that they didn't have that mentality of, of what it took on a every other night basis to have to play the best hockey of the season. Uh, and put in a complete body of work uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, go, going through your regular uh, routine uh, during the regular season. So, um, yeah, I think that there, there do need to be some players on the Sabres roster who add that layer of leadership beyond Alex Tuck, Kyle Poso, um, name another leader or two on the team. I mean, there aren't a ton uh, but when you look back on those really good Sabres teams, they had layers of leadership. The Mike Greers, uh, the Jay McKees, um, you know, even the young, the, I'm trying to think who Adam Mayer, uh, you know, you had these guys dotted through uh, Teppo Newman, who was a captain for a long time with his in Phoenix. Um, the, the, and of course, that's a really good team. That's a president's trophy winning team and a team that went to back to back conference finals. And I know that the Sabres aren't there yet, but that's part of the roster building that I think you need to really look at if you want to make the next step from being a team that is just scrappy, like the Sabres were heading into that 2004 lockout to emerging as a really good, formidable, competitive opponent that could win on any night. Uh, not only during the regular season, but has a chance to actually win playoff series. It also comes out, and one thing, a few of the players are getting some of that experience with Rochester right now. Uh, the Americans won their first playoff series since 2005, and Jack Quinn and J.J. Paterka and Peyton Krebs are playing significant minutes on that team. Casey Fitzgerald, some other players that might be up in Buffalo next year. I think it would be good – the, a lot of the players on the team, maybe Rasmus Dowling's the first one that comes to mind, might need to develop this in their own game, and it might be part of their growth and maturation as a leader. And it's why if the Sabres were able to sneak into the playoffs next year as the eighth seed, and even if it results in a sweep or what you're saying, they'd really get uh, it handed to them in the playoffs if they were there right now. But that could be beneficial going forward. It could teach a lesson of how the game changes and how you need to play and not getting – carried away with regular season success that might not be applicable to the playoffs. And it's also the coaching style and the, the system that they play. Don Granado has done a wonderful job. And the moment the Sabres they are in, developing the young talent, encouraging them to play fast and free and not benching players for offensive, aggressive-minded mistakes. But at a point in time, you do need to change that approach and change that style and put more structure in place and – be more like a Lindy Ruff style coach. And I don't know, I mean, Don Granado might be able to do that seamlessly when the roster is ready to contend and be that type of team. 
but it might be a rocky road getting from playing one way to all of a sudden emphasizing different things and playing a different way in a year or two. Um, this seems like a good time to take a break and remind everybody that you can watch all the college and pro games. You can watch the basketball playoffs, the hockey playoffs, all the different pay-per-views. Don't forget Baseball at Amherst Pizza and Alehouse, 55 Cross Point Parkway in Getzville. That's right off of Millersport Highway in the 990. Amherst Pizza and Alehouse has TVs in of doors and out of doors. 80 degrees this week. No excuse for you to uh, drink your beer inside. Uh, make sure that you go get your wings, your pizza, your uh, have your beers, uh, all the different uh, micros that they have on tap, the local stuff. Uh, recognized by ESPN.com as Western New York's top spot to watch sports. Uh, you can stop in or call for takeout and delivery. Well, you'd probably want takeout or delivery, unless you're really a glutton. I guess you can get takeout and delivery. You can get to get it. Yeah, get, eat there. Get takeout and delivery. I mean, who's stopping you? 716-625-7100. Again, the number there at Amherst Pizza and Alehouse. 716-625-7100. Amherst Pizza and Alehouse. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400, and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Joined on... Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK now by Gene Kirshner had to have him back. Um, that was a Kentucky Derby worth revisiting. Many of them are, but this one was historic. Uh, Gene rich strike 80 to one. You can say figuratively, we didn't see it coming, but when we spoke last week and previewed the Kentucky Derby. We can literally say we didn't see it coming because this horse wasn't even in the field yet. We didn't even talk about it, which makes it all the more outrageous. Um, Gene, I guess, what was your reaction to watching this horse down the home stretch? And it was so far back, I guess, at what point in the race do you realize that, that, that rich strike has a chance here? Well, no, no one really saw him. And from where I was, I was in the regular winter circle, which is directly across from the Derby winter circle, which is in the, you know, on the turf course. It's only used once a year, 364 days. It's pretty much dormant. So I was in the regular um, winning winter circle, which is about, I'm going to guess 500 yards from the finish line. So the finish line was to my right. Um, so I didn't pick him up until he passed us. And I saw a flash of a two coming up the inside. And my first reaction was, holy crap, thought it was Happy Jack. And then I'm like, no, it's not a white saddlecloth because the two saddlecloth is white. Uh, 
and then I said, well, it has to be Rich Strike. And I was like, my Lord, <laughs> what is going on? I mean, this is Buster Douglas type uh, uh, upset, you know, USA hockey against Russia. I mean, you know, historic stuff. Um, and, you know, the two, probably the two best horses and, you know, that were training up to the Derby were the two dueling. Uh, and then I, you know, went back and listened to the call of the race. I haven't heard Travis Stones, who was the on-track announcer. I, I have it bookmarked to listen to it. But uh, the NBC feed with Larry Colmas, he didn't pick him up until the last, you know, jump pretty much. It was, so he didn't see them. He didn't, he didn't mention Rich Strike's name until the finish line. Like, as it, it was, everybody was so focused on the two lead horses, the two favorites, too. Everybody kind of envisioned that type of finish between the second and third place horses being first and second. That was, that was like to be expected a little bit. Uh, and then all of a sudden it was, Holy smokes. Wait a minute. Yeah. And it's just, just amazing. Um, of course I had all kinds of things happening with the two, uh, with the three horse and the 10, 10 horse and, uh, simple simplification. I had fourth, uh, in the paper, you know, epicenter second in the paper, they came in second and fourth. So I got it. That was 50% right. <laughs> uh, but 18, my, uh, I want to, I, I just want to read this because I think it's, uh, it kind of sets sure. it up uh, really um, impressively. And it's kind of uh, jaw dropping uh, context here. Uh, I'm reading from the column by Rick Bozich, the longtime Louisville columnist, uh, formerly of the Louisville Courier Journal, but now works for, and you got to love this, the, the Fox station in uh, Louisville with the call letters WDRB. Uh, and so Rick Bozich, uh, this is his column, uh, Dateline Louisville. In the last five races, Rich Strike ran before winning the Kentucky Derby on Saturday. The Colt was never in the lead at any point of any race. The last five races. He finished third, fifth, third, fourth, and third, beaten by an average of nearly six lengths. The last time Rich Strike led in any race was 232 days ago. In the Colts' last two races at Turfway Park, Rich Strike was beaten decisively by Tiz the Bomb, who was trained by Kenny McPeak. On Saturday, Rich Strike won the Derby. Tiz the Bomb finished ninth, nearly 13 lengths back. That's If, if you want to talk in sports about analytics and uh, taking a look at things, I mean, the 80 to 1... I don't know what sounds like more of a long shot, the, the figure 80 to one or those four paragraphs I just read about this late entry. Um, so Gene, how does this happen? How, how does this happen that, that a horse uh, we didn't even know was going to be in the field, but we'll get to the win. But what, what's the process of a horse at the last minute getting a chance to run in the Kentucky Derby? Well, this horse coming into the week um, before the draw, before the entry box, uh, was actually 24th on the points list. So he was four horses away from even being in the field. Um, so before the, uh, before they, the post position draw, the final entries go in, and three of the horses um, decided to go elsewhere. Um, three, and I think Unoho was one of them, early voting, in due time. And then, and then finally what happened on Friday morning was ethereal, ethereal road scratched uh, Dwayne Lucas, who won the Oaks the day before, you know, that, that day later in the day with Secret Oath, um, 
didn't think his horse was right. So he scratched Ethereal Road before the nine o'clock deadline um, so that Rich Strike drew into the race at that point. And the reason we didn't talk about him last Thursday, because we didn't know until Friday morning when that happened. Um, so Rich Strike's connections had the option to go in the race or not. And they decided to go in. Now, the reason it's at 9 a.m. on Friday morning is that's when advanced uh, wagering can start. Uh, and the reason it's the day before is wagers on the Oaks, Oaks Derby double can start happening at that point. So you need to know who's in the Derby at that point so that those wagers could be made. You don't want to get into a situation too, where if you're the house that you have to refund a bunch of tickets uh, because a horse (laughs) is a scratch. Correct. Correct. So, and, and one other note about those five races that Rick mentioned in his article, one of them was in down in the fairgrounds, the gun runner, and he faced epicenter that day who came in second in the Derby and beat and was beaten by 14 lengths by epicenter. So your question of how does, how does this happen? Well, it was the fastest quarter mile in Derby history, 148 years that never seen the first quarter mile go that fast. And out of the first nine horses, not the quarter pole, by the way, quarter pole. Yeah. Yeah. You made a quick quick note of that. We're just talking about the first quarter mile of the race. So from the start, uh, the quarter pole gene, of course, (laughs) is the last quarter mile of a race. That's correct. That four weeks or five weeks into the NFL season, uh, we see misused quite a bit. And you and I are always on top of that. <laughs> right. You know, and Jonah, we, we've gotten Jonah in. Jonah, Jonah's on he rolls his eyes at it, thing. but he's All a right. stickler. Well, I, I think that uh, in horse racing, you're correct and that you could apply quarter pole in other genres. No, you can't. You to. Nope. Because no, the quarter pole four is quarters. a quarter you mile put a pole up. There could be four different quarter poles and you could define. Well, no, there's only one, there's only one quarter pole. <laughs> yeah, Jonah. I'll show you a quarter pole. <laughs> uh so so because of that because of that that happening anyone who was up front got cooked pre- pretty much at that point because they're just going too fast to sustain 10 furlongs around the track um so out of the first nine horses only epicenter hung on which really shows you what an effort that horse gave even though you know he came in second and you know, he got beat. His whole thing was his holding off Sandin because that was the horse that he thought was going to, you know, come up and beat him. Um, I actually grabbed Chad Brown after the race while I stalked him pretty much. I took him, I, I stalked him right through the tunnel to the paddock and he was talking to his owners and, you know, I just waited patiently to get him. And then when I talked to him, it, it was very interesting. He said that, you know, for Zandon, he had drawn up a number of different scenarios and what happened, he actually had drawn up that scenario where he wanted his horse just to track epicenter, find him, track him, and then pass him at the end. Well, he said he, he did everything, you know, it, it happened according to, to Hoyle and his horse was tracking epicenter, you know, the whole way, just, but the, just couldn't get by him at the, at the end, which is amazing. Cause he was, he was well back. Um, you know, I think if you look at, if you looked at the horses from, uh, you know, that finished in the top uh, top ten horses. They're all in the back of the pack at the first at the first at the half mile at the at the quarter mile. Um, so it was really just a, a matter of pace. Pace makes the race. That's what they say, and it definitely did on uh, on Saturday. And you know, this this horse did show some improvement. Um, it's just his speed figures just weren't there. He, you know, he 
I don't know if I would have put them in the party crasher division or the uh, the gremlin division because, uh, <laughs> you know, he hadn't really ran a, 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 a race that fast. I mean, his highest fire speed figure was 84. And we're talking about, you know, Epicenter ran a 102, you know, prior to the race, Taiba ran like a 103. And we talked about it a little bit on Thursday. And, you know, they gave him a 101 for the race on Saturday. So, it, you know, uh, the, his trainer said he thought that, he, you know, was going to enjoy the additional distance. You know, none of none of the twenty horses had run a mile and a quarter before, um, before Saturday. So, you know, who knows? The Preakness is a, you know, a, was a sixteenth less um, than uh, um, than the Derby. So it's a mile and three sixteenths, same as the Prince of Wales over at Fort Erie. Second leg of the Canadian Triple Crown, second leg of the American Triple Crown, around the same distance. Um, so we'll see what, and the other thing about Rich Strike is he ran on synthetics. The, those races that he beat, that he was beaten by Tiz the Bomb were on a synthetic surface at Turfway Park. So typically the, you know, horses that do well on the turf can run well on a synthetic. Doesn't always translate to, to the dirt. Uh, his dirt races were, you know, other than his race that he broke his maiden on, where he did win by 17 lengths, by the way, um, back, uh, back in September of 21. So the other interesting thing about this horse is, uh, you know, he was uh, claimed from Calumet Farm, who, who bred him. And Calumet is right next to Keeneland. Uh, it's a, a famous farm. It, it, had, it bred two uh, Triple Crown winners, Whirl Away and Citation. I'm sure you've heard those names. Uh, Ali Dar was one of the stars of that barn back in the day that lost to Affirmed in all three Triple Crown races. Um, so they... Uh, they ran him for one race and then the next race in September that he won by 17 lengths, they put him up for claim, uh, a $30,000 claiming race where everyone, every horse in the race is up basically up for sale, uh, before the race owners can put, uh, put a ticket in the claim box. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this, the owner of the horse, this Rick Dawson, he put a claim in for rich strike for $30,000 and it was a pretty good investment. What do you think that means for him as an owner? Uh, Rich Strike, I mean, obviously he still has a couple more races to run here for, uh, for glory uh, to go down in even greater history, perhaps. I mean, the numbers are against it, but what does this mean in terms of the progeny of, of Rich Strike? How much is this horse worth now? How much is his, uh, his stud fee worth now? I mean, what, what does this mean financially? Yeah, so... So typically he would sell to one of the breeding operations, you know, and, you know, he's probably being approached by some of the bigger owners right now, uh, you know, with a price and whether he wants to keep running with them and trying to win the purses or, or you know, cash out because he could, he could flame out the Preakness, right? And, you know, maybe his stud fee is not going to be that much. Everyone says it's a fluke. Um, but if he, if he does, isn't well that the what the, the owner did the Calumet farms yeah. did after he wins by 17 lengths, right? It's like, okay, we have a really big victory here. No, no, we no don't think before, much was, of this horse. It was before that race. So he had only run once and lost. Oh, he, oh okay. I'm sorry. I was, I, he lost, I mis- by, he lost I by 14 lengths. So he, he lost his maiden race by 14 lengths. So before oh, then he second, was put up for sale, then he was put in claim. Okay. Race. Got it. Got it. So he, and then he was claimed by, uh, by Dawson. Got it. Um, so, you know, what does it, what does it mean for that owner? I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to mean something because he's going to get a, he's going to get a 
a nice spot for him. I mean, anytime you have a Derby winner at stud, it's, you know, he's won the Derby. So, you know, he, he's, he's shown that he can do it. So whether or not uh, it's going to be a, a decent price, we'll see how he does. And I think a lot of people are waiting to see how he does, you know, in the Preakness, from, you know, and, and through the summer. Um, Cause I'm sure they, they talked about, you know, going to Saratoga and running the Traverse. So uh, we'll get to see him up here in upstate New York which is great. I guess you could call Saratoga upstate New York. I, I've had arguments with people on that, but, um, I would. Yeah. Why not? Uh, so, you know, we'll see. It's, uh, it's interesting. Um, another point, you know, Buffalo was number five in the, uh, in the ratings again, uh, behind Louisville, uh, Fort Myers, Cincinnati, which is basically, you know, right up the road from Louisville. West Palm Beach, and then we were tied with Baltimore, where the Preakness is for fifth. Wow, uh, what do you make of that? Uh, I mean, we, but Buffalo I, always ranks highly in the different ratings for the major events when it comes to sports. But Buffalo, you know, those are horse racing. Every one of those is, hor- is a horse racing town. Yeah, I, I would say this is a horse racing town. I mean, we've got. Well, I, I wasn't trying to insult you there, but it's not known as that. I, I think we got three tracks within an hour and a half. We've got two harness tracks right here. I mean, uh, I'll tell you, every year it's, you know, the OTBs are packed. I was getting pictures that, like, I can't get a parking, you know, my buddies were sending me texts saying I can't get a parking spot. Uh, and, you know, it's the Derby. I get it. Uh, but, but then why don't the local tracks have more success? You know, every few years we see the story about, you know, hey, if such and such doesn't happen, we might have to close or. Things aren't well, great. Port Erie is more was is more you know, it's a B track and it's you know under the government. But Woodbine's a you know an hour and a half away. It's a pretty big track. I mean, if you want to, you know, say we're in that in that metropolitan area or whatever. But I don't know. I, they they have me writing about it, so <laughs> right. <laughs> Must be somebody reading it. You get to keep chronicling history. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Um. What else? What else can I tell you guys? Jonah has a question. I do not have a question. <laughs> well, here, this begs the question. We were flirting with it here. What chance? We talk about it every year, right? Whatever horse wins the Kentucky Derby begets the follow up, right? Can it win the Triple Crown? Um, as outrageous as this has been, uh, what what are we looking at in terms of uh, forecasting the next two triple crown races? Well, the Preakness is going to be pretty interesting because if Lucas decides to run the Philly in the race, that's going to, that's going to put a whole different twist on it. Um, So secret oath won the Kentucky Oaks pretty in a a pretty nice way. Very, very impressive. Um, She took on the boys in the Arkansas Derby and just had a, horrendous trip got caught behind horses made a huge move like and the same type of move that she made in the uh, K- Kentucky Oaks where she just made a move on the on the far turn and just blew the, blew the field away um so if she runs in the race it'll be interesting so but he's got ethereal road who scratched out of the derby also um that could run in the preakness is he going to run his two horses against each other or just you know move her to the black eyed susan uh on on the day the day before, which is the Philly equivalent of the, the Preakness, um, so it it'll be interesting, and there'll be there'll be some new shooters. They call them um, early voting. Who you know back was one of those four horses that backed out of the Derby 
uh, for Chad Brown um, probably will run. Steve Asmussen likes to, you know, he's not shy about running back uh, two weeks. So he should have, if Epicenter's in the race, Epicenter will be the favorite. There's no doubt about it. Um, Rich Strike will probably be around five to seven to one, I'm guessing. Um, just, just based on everyone saying, you know, the horse, he got the perfect trip. He had the inside, you know, inside trip and, you know, the race pace, you know, really dictated him winning, uh, in the Derby and he'll have, he'll have a lot of people that are skeptical about him winning again, uh, in the Preakness. So can he win the triple crown? Sure. I mean, he's got, he's the only horse that has a shot at it. Right. Uh, and his, um, his sire, interesting, interestingly enough, Keen Ice, is the horse that beat upset American Pharaoh uh, at in the Travers at Saratoga in 2015, in in a, another monumental upset in horse racing. Um, and again, that was a race where American Pharaoh got cooked on the front end, frosted, pressed them the whole way, and then Keen Ice came from behind to to win the race, uh, closed on him at the in the final jump. Uh, so it's kind of neat that his dad had one of the you know biggest upsets in horse racing history, and he he does the same thing, but at eighty to one. Do, do we think Rich Strike understands what's at stake here and might feel a little pressure going into these coming races? No, he's a horse. He's just he's <laughs> he's uh, bred to run, uh, and he's and, and you know I don't know if you guys saw after the race. Obviously, there was you know, and I, I watched on TV yesterday um at home the the last hour of the telecast but when he um savaged that horse after the race you know the explanation that the trainer gave uh on the today show on monday was you know he thought there's there's typically not a horse coming at you after the race you know in belterra park or thistledown or some of the places that you know <laughs> that that this horse you know has been at. So he thought the race was still going. The horse came up. He was just ready to take off again. He's just so keyed up, you know? <laughs> so it was, it was interesting. And he just, you know, was still, you know, in race mode is what, what the trainer said. Uh, and the outrider's job is to try to calm him down, get him over to the interview. So Donna, Barton something Brooks, with a little more decorum than a punch in the face, you know, yeah, maybe a right. rolled up newspaper, like something <laughs> that you'd use, you know, at home. Well, you know, I mean, he got, a little wrap on the snout from a rolled up newspaper. Apparently he was biting the, uh, the pony, you know, on the, on the way in too. So yeah, I read that. Uh, he's, uh, he was fired up for sure. Um, and you know we'll 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 see what happens. Um, what um what souvenir did you bring back? Uh, I, you can see your office there behind you at CTBK Central. Uh, I've been in there and it's a it's an awesome. Uh, you got some great decor in there from your races that you've covered, from some historic races and things like that. What what are you going to do for this race? I'm sure you don't have a ticket <laughs> that has Rich Strike on it. You don't have a two dollar ticket with Rich Strike, do you? You know, it's funny. I, You're going to have bought, to start doing two dollars across the board just so that I, I bought, you can have a winner to take home with you. I bought ten of them. I didn't have that one though. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to so, do? I, I'm going to keep epicenters because if he wins the next two, it's like the Fleet Alex division, right? Winning the Preakness and the Belmont. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll see. No, I didn't. I didn't really have any. Uh, 
any souvenirs. Like I bought a vest, you can see a derby vest. So that's that's about it. And I had a couple buttons, you know, they give away my horses and I had Messier and Epicenter. But uh those are those are collectibles now. Unlike Mark Messier, there was no guarantee for the horse Messier. And uh, maybe that somebody needed to make a guarantee like Mark did in the uh, 94 finals. Uh, yeah. uh, last question for you before we let you go, Gene. Sure. Um, how about uh, Ray Gutierrez uh, from Victor High School? Uh, he was uh, on uh, Barber Road, uh, which uh, I'm not sure where it went off, but it won- at uh, the morning line was 30 to one. Uh, what was his experience like? Yeah, he ended up at 54 to one and he ended up uh, running sixth. And he did a pretty nice job because he kept his horse back. So he had the time clock in his head not to go with the early, you know, the earlier leaders or even try to track them. Uh, so he was back early in the race. And then uh, he made a pretty good run at the end. Uh, he was in fifth and he, he just one horse nipped him for uh, uh, for fourth or something like that. So he, he was just he was right there, um, you know, probably a three lengths back, three and a half lengths back of the leaders. Um, so he what does that do for your career? If you finish, you're, you're off the board, but what he's fit, he's fit. I'm sorry. Sixth, fifth, sixth, he he finished finished sixth. sixth. What does that do for his career as a jockey to finish sixth versus fourth versus 10th? Does it matter? Well, what it does is that he gained experience, right? Running in that race with 20 horses shows that he could do it shows that he could, you know, finish in the top 10 for top six. Right. Um, and he really did a nice job. I mean, I, I only picked him up yesterday at the end. I did some replays just to watch and I picked him up from the, uh, from the quarter pole. Uh, and you know, he did a, He did a nice job moving in and in, in, in and out of horses and had his horse in the clear to make a run. And, you know, he finished, he finished strong for, you know, where it was at 54 to one. I mean, you know, he was, he did a nice job. It was job. funny. Yeah. Uh, and maybe there's a little stereotypical aspect here to it, but when they're doing the, uh, the pre-race uh, introductions like they do on Sunday night football or Monday night football, and they say, you know, the, the jockey says the name. And there are obviously English as a second language. Uh, a lot of them, you have the guys from Louisiana uh, who sound like they just got uh, plucked out of the swamp. <laughs> and then here comes... Ray Gutierrez, you know, it was like the, uh, it was like the skit from, uh, uh, Key and Peele, uh, when they do the, uh, <laughs> when they do the football, they, nice it, was like, it just was like out of nowhere. You hear just like the guy from Western New York and it's like, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. He does. He's not <laughs> one of these things is not like the other. I like the fact that when, uh, Reed, the trainer said, well, they know who he is now on about Sonny Leone and the, and the, and the ride that he gave him. Cause he gave him a, tremendous ride i mean if you watched him you know only big brown is one from post 20 and big brown went right to the lead and took him around um in 2008 i mean he you know he won the first two legs of triple crown and you know had a had a tough day at the belmont uh but sunny sunny leone i mean just took him right right to the rail saved ground all all the way around and then what what he did you know to get around messier when messier was you know starting to, to back up you know, because he was he was he was cooked at that point. He weaved him out, and then Crown Pride was right to his right, and he just cut inside to him and went right right down the rail. He traveled sixty feet more than um, than Epicenter did, the second place horse, um, which is which is kind of kind of a cool statistic. Um, 
Joel Rosario, who's on Epicenter, won two more races than him in 2021, but he won 32.9 million and Sonny Leone won 3.7 million on, you know, these running at Belterra and Thistledown on tracks like that. Mahoning Valley, he was like the leading rider, but, you know, he he knows how to win races and, you know, he do it in the minor leagues, but he, could, he showed he could do it on the on the big stage for sure. Jeff Manto had nice days in the major leagues every now and then. Couldn't stay there, but he 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 owned AAA, and every now and then he'd get called up to the Indians and contribute, uh, have have a nice day, maybe go to have a two for four or something. It happens. There was a guy for the Yankees that I forget his name. It was the same thing for when when Columbus was the farm team. He used to come into Syracuse and drill a bunch of home runs, but. Batted like 130 anytime he went up to the Yanks. Kevin Maz, Bam Bam Hewlins. <laughs> I don't, I, I can't remember. If you said it, I'd, I'd know who it was. But, uh, Gene, thanks for coming back and explaining what happened with Rich Strike. Uh, 80 to one history in Louisville at the Kentucky Derby. And again, <laughs> I guess it was like a mock draft, and uh, there's a trade. Uh, in the second pick in your mock draft just gets shot to hell like right away. Uh, that was our preview uh, from last week. Uh, it was moot. Uh, there hey, was, uh, Rich Strike wasn't even mentioned in the whole thing. He, hey, he wasn't even on the T-shirt you could buy there. It was only the 20 horses that were on the T-shirt, and he wasn't even on it. <laughs> so you so would think that Rich Strike – I don't know about this. I'm sure – I know – well, I do know that that Kentucky Derby memorabilia is highly sought after. Um, what would be the thing? I mean, he's not on it. He's not on any of the stuff that you could get. He's not in the program. Well, he's in the the racing form or whatever, right? The daily. Yeah. He's got to be somewhere. Well, but... he'll be, he'll be on the Derby glass next year because they list all the winners. Well, was everybody gets that. So you have something, you, if you can find something that has a rich strike on it, uh, that's, that's uh, from before the race. Yeah. You, uh, you might have a keepsake. Yeah, Gene, I'm curious in the decade or so that you've been covering horse racing for the Buffalo News, is this the most memorable event that you've witnessed live or covered in that fashion? You know, I'd say it's probably the most memorable derby, uh, but not the most memorable memorable event. Definitely the uh, American Pharaoh Triple Crown win at Belmont was just an incredible experience with, you know, crowd going crazy, 90,000 people, uh, you know, 39-year drought being being ended. Um, so that, I think that ranks up there. Um, the keen ice upset over American Pharaoh that we talked about, uh, would be up there, you know, and, but this would, this would probably top my Derby, you know, my, my, my 12 derbies, you know, close second would be Barbaro that I saw in 20, 2006 as a fan, uh, cause he was a special horse. Um, but you know, to top and even the crazy stuff that's happened in the last few years with the DQ of maximum security and then last year's you know Baffert uh, situation with uh, Medina Spirit um, and speaking of derby glasses the 2021 winner is blank on the derby glass this year so they didn't uh, have it in time to put Mandaloon's name on there and they didn't want to put Baffert's horse's name on there so what do they do just have a generic horse on there like the old uh, AFL Bills logo and number it 31 just says 2021 and then it's blank next to oh. <laughs> Whoops. Well, I want to ask uh, this, Gene, uh, before we let you go. Um, 
a record $179 million handle uh, for the Kentucky Derby this year uh, breaks the record of 2019. So pre-COVID 2019 was a record that I guess, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth as, as somebody who's followed this, but it seems as though it underscores uh, some strength in the sport. Uh, but then that happens, you know, when the, when the gates open, that $179 million has already set the record. So there's that aspect of the growth. And then an 80 to one long shot wins it, bringing in all kinds of attention. Um, the casual sports fan who's just struck by the idea of, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. We see the overhead call of the race that has gone viral of Rich Strike uh, overtaking an epicenter in Zandon uh, and how amazing it is. What does this do for the sport in terms of making it a pretty cool thing? Because I think there have been some concerns, generationally speaking, of, you know, what, what is horse racing's future? Seems pretty strong. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. And, and to add to the handle aspect, uh, TVG, which is one of the uh, ADW services, was down for like two and a half, three hours on Derby Day. So there was lost handle uh, that could have been, you know, been had and do we know what happened with that uh technical issues I, I, apparently yeah, a, uh, you know sometimes the servers get overwhelmed about with, with the volume so it's um but uh you know they should it shouldn't happen especially on you know horse racing's biggest day um but i think it's going to generate a lot of excitement i think it's going to generate a lot of viewership you know in the preakness um just to see if the rich strike well is it was it the real deal is can he can he do it again uh, you know, they'll still be a pretty decent price. So, you know, people will bet on him. Um, just, just for the fact that he's, you know, America's hero at this point, you know, America loves an underdog. Rocky you know, Balboa. And, he, and, you know, if he, if he's not an underdog, I don't know what is, uh, you know, J jockey and trainer that run, run on, you know, beat level tracks most of the time coming up and beating all the big boys. Uh, and the big boys will be out, you know, they, They'll know who, who he is this time, uh, on, uh, next next Saturday, twenty first. So, it'll, it it should be an interesting uh, situation for sure. I'm I I can't wait because I think it's it's going to be a fun betting race. I think it's going to be a fun event. I think you know a lot of people are talking about horse racing, which is great. Um, and uh, you know, it's Tim nice, Graham nice. and friends brought to you by CTBK is taking a second bite at the apple. We've reopened the whole podcast around horse racing. Back to back. Yeah, if I can actually get into this, you know, if I can speak a little bit more intelligently about it, I think we should just have a horse racing podcast. <laughs> All horse racing. Yeah, well, there's lots of good races throughout the year, for sure. There's Saratoga gets going. We got, we got lots to talk about there. So, Well, Gene, um, we look forward to having you back for the next one. Uh, thanks for this. Thanks for coming on a second time and explaining all this to us. Uh, and... Uh, we look forward to talking with you again. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. That's Gene Kirshner from the Buffalo News. You can follow him on Twitter at Equispace. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants.